Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Yay! You got a job on Broadway! I can't believe it! I mean, I can, but I can't believe this is real. We are officially, officially moving here. No more six weeks at a time, just permanent. Yup. We're in it for the long haul now. So, you know what this means. We gotta start looking for a place. Awesome! Our first apartment hunt in NYC. I'll get our friend Mandy McDonald, who's a realtor with Keller Wheeler on the phone, and start scheduling some days for her to show us around. Perfect. What neighborhood should we tell her to look for? Like, look at? Remember, let's go big and then we'll collapse our dreams as we go. <laughs> okay, well, if we're going big, the West Village, Hell's Kitchen. The Upper West Side. Yeah, Harlem, like up by Columbia and such. Mm, what about New Jersey? I've heard it's cheaper and not a bad commute. Well, I don't know. I was really looking forward to living in Manhattan. How about we start in New York and then branch out to, like, New Jersey and Queens and Brooklyn and all that? Okay. Did I ever tell you about the time I was out in New York City but was staying in Jersey, so I had to come in and out of the city every day via bus? It sounds familiar. I was staying with family in Livingston, and this is when I was younger. My mom would have us on the bus bright and early at, like, 6 in the morning. We were riding into the Port Authority bus terminal via the Lincoln Tunnel, remember that, and then we'd be riding back out again at about 11 p.m. at night. And as a kid from a small town out west, it was exciting then. Funny the things that used to thrill us when we were younger. Anywho, yeah, I once uh, commuted from New Jersey to the city, so I've, I've done that. Okay, so we'll start looking in Manhattan. Yes, please. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today, we're going to be discussing the intrinsic show, Violet the Musical. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Before another sunrise wakes me, before another night is gone, I'll find out where this highway takes me. You know I gotta travel on. And we hope you'll come along on our travels when we delve into our uplifting and heartbreaking show today, Violet. This incredible revival produced by Roundabout Theater stormed onto Broadway, led by an all-star cast that took audiences on a journey not only through the Bible Belt, but through the human experience as well. But before we arrive at our destination, we have to first lay the groundwork. Violet was developed at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center's National Music Theater Conference in 1994. It premiered off-Broadway at Playwrights Horizons on March 11, 1997, and closed on April 6, 1997. Directed by Susan H. Schulman, with choreography by Kathleen Marshall. It won the Drama Critics Circle Award and Lucille Lordle Award for Best Musical. In January 2003, a reunion concert was held at Playwrights Horizon, at which the members of the original cast performed. The Encore's Off-Center series held a one-night production at the New York City Center on July 17, 2013. Sutton Foster played Violet with Joshua Henry as Flick. This is a perfect time to introduce our design team. The book and lyrics are by Brian Crawley, music by Jeannie Tesori, based on The Ugliest Pilgrim by Doris Betts, 
The director was Lee Silverman, choreographer Jeffrey L. Page. Set design, David Zinn. Costume design, Clint Ramos. Lighting design, Mark Barton. Sound design, Leon Rothenberg. Hair and wig design, Charles G. Lapointe. Makeup design, Dave Bova. The show premiered at the American Airlines Theater on April 20th, 2014 and played 128 shows before closing on August 10th, 2014. That season, the show would be nominated for four Tony Awards. So let us embark on our journey. With a ticket, a suitcase, and a heart full of expectation, Violet Carl waits for a Greyhound bus in Spruce Pine, North Carolina. It is September 4th, 1964. For a moment, she sees herself as a young girl, carefree and singing a folk song before her face was horribly disfigured in an accident. A local's nosy question breaks Violet's revere, prompting her to look forward to the healing she expects to receive from a televangelist in Tulsa. That will help her transcend her provincial little town. As the bus departs the station, the passengers muse as to where their journey might lead them. The passengers pile off the bus to get some food at a rest stop in Kingsport, Tennessee. In the grill, Violet meets two poker plane soldiers, Flick and Monty. Flick is a black sergeant in his early 30s, Monty, a younger white corporal, a paratrooper. Both are bound for Fort Smith, Arkansas. Violet asks to join their game, and as they deal her in, she privately recalls how her father taught her to play. Back on the bus, Monty teases Violet about a preacher he obviously has no faith in. He takes a book she carries and plays keep away with it which triggers violet's memory of the day she found the catechism in her father's bedside table later in the nashville station flick wants to know exactly what it is that violet wants to change with the help of movie magazines she shows the soldiers the physical features she'd like best but they offend her when their attention wanders she sits apart from them as the journey continues, recalling once again her younger self singing the folk song, which turns out to have been the moment just before the accident. Violet daydreams an encounter between herself as young Vi and the preacher. As they are approaching Memphis, Flick seeks Violet out to apologize for offending her earlier. He suggests she can take care of herself without the help of the preacher. Stopping in Memphis overnight, the trio pass a hooker on the way to a boarding house, where Almeda, the landlady, resists housing a white woman until Flick slips her some money. While a song plays on the radio, Violet dozes, seeing herself as young Vi, trying to dance with her father, then practicing dancing with the old lady from the bus. Monty appears and dances with both women in turn. Monty really has entered Violet's room. He finds her book and starts to read things Violet has written in it. She awakes and confronts him, prompting Monty to explain himself. Flick enters the room with some drinks to start the night off. The threesome venture out to a Beale Street music hall, where the sight of Flick dancing with Violet attracts some unfriendly attention. When Monty moves in and makes a pass at Violet, Flick leaves the hall. Violet follows him back to the boarding house. The landlady interrupts a tender moment between them. In the middle of the night, Monty stumbles in through Violet's unlocked door. He wakes her, makes love to her, then falls asleep in her lap. The music hall singer, the landlady, and the hooker cap the evening with a trio about unfulfilled desire. Violet travels with the men to Fort Smith the next morning on her way to Tulsa. Flick and Violet pledge to write each other, but Flick gets upset about the events of the night before. Violet escapes to the bus bathroom where she rehearses what she will say to spurn Monty, 
afraid he'll otherwise reject her first. In the front of the bus, Monty rehearses his own spiel at Flick's direction. But when it comes time to part, Monty instead asks Violet to meet him on her return stop at Fort Smith. She promises nothing, cleaving to her plan, and the bus pulls away. In Tulsa, Violet surprises the preacher in rehearsal with his choir. He pawns her off on Virgil, a young assistant, and in her frustration, she recovers the memory of being carried in her father's arms after the accident. Soon, she slips away from Virgil and returns to the televangelist's empty chapel. Violet takes out her catechism and empty slips of paper she has covered with Bible quotes on the altar. When the preacher discovers her, she pleads with him to help invoke her miracle. When nothing comes of this desperate attempt, she demands he see her for what she is, scarred and hideous, a prodigy of pain. She looks to the heavens for a moment. The preacher is replaced by her father. They fight until he apologizes for what he has done. Aware that something about herself has changed, Violet assumes it is her scar. She rewards the bus, convinced she has had a miracle. When she gets out at the Fort Smith station, Monty is there waiting. He, his efforts at sympathy make plain to her that her face has not changed at all. Crushed, she rejects Monty's invitation to marry him before he ships off to Vietnam. Flick is also at the station and recognizes that Violet has changed, though her scar has not. He entreats her to stay with him. Violet's healing is complete when she takes Flick's, Flick's hand and commits to a new life with him. The, the end. end. parts we liked and the parts that we maybe didn't this was an interesting show for me because this is the part of our theater going experience where i started just buying tickets to shows because they were shows and particularly broadway shows and particularly musicals and this was a roundabout theater production and sutton foster was in it and i was like yeah let's go let's great i didn't even look at the fact that Jeannie tesori had written the music and she is one of my favorite musical composers. Honestly, she's in my top three. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up really enjoying the show. Because not only was it brilliantly performed, not only was it a brilliant story, but it also had brilliant music. You know, it, it brought it all together. And I was like, hey. Well, and I remember not really knowing anything about this show, having a hard time finding what the show was about. And then... After seeing the show, I realized that unless you saw it all together, there isn't a good way to describe the feeling. Right. And it's the way that the the storytelling happens is because it's done with a lot of flashbacks. Well, and it's done in a very non-linear way, and it's more about the expression than than anything else. I feel like there's a lot of metaphor in the show versus, like, actual... Like, there's experiences, but we're dealing with a lot of metaphor here. One of the things I liked was that it focused more on the character's journey, mainly on the internal journey, not on the physical journey. So we got more of a sense of where these people internal, what they're, what they were internalizing. And even in the minor characters, you know, you had the older woman who played several different roles. Um, two that I thought were interesting was she played the older woman who was going to move with her son. But she, you know, oh, I'm going to move my son, but I don't like kids. And they got a lot of kids. What what grandmother says that? Mm-hmm. But it's the what's internalized. But then you flip around. She's playing the hooker when they get to Memphis. And it's like, what an interesting choice. And it's kind of almost like that choose your own adventure. What if you hadn't done this choice? In each different city, we saw the ensemble playing different roles right. of like what could but it have wasn't, been. And it wasn't anything like... Like, oh, it's obvious they're playing different people. You know what I mean? Like, it was... 
don't know. I what I loved is I spent the whole time trying to see the scar on Sutton Foster's face. Me too. And and, and, and it I, wasn't there. It wasn't there. But the way that she physicalized the shame of the scar was beautiful because then it was gone at the end. Right. And that's one thing I like because I was like, maybe there was no scar. Maybe the scar was, like you said, shame. Mm-hmm. Maybe because she lived out on her own. She lived with only her papa. You know, mom was gone long ago. And she maybe some things that she was taught by her father. <clears throat> shame was a big part of that. And maybe the scar is not a scar, but shame. Mm-hmm. And I really just... And especially then when you throw in the, the televangelist point. You know, with religion, shame is a big pillar uh, in a way to coax people to do things. Yeah. And I thought, what? I, now, see, that idea took me years to get my head around. Mm-hmm. The idea that the, the scar could have been shame. But I did. I, I was like you. I was looking for the scar. And I was, and it bothered me at first. Like, why aren't they doing the scar? Um, but, I mean, ever since, I, since seeing the show, there have been many other productions where they haven't put that physical um, deformity on the character, uh, most recently Cyrano de Bergerac at BAM, where it was meant to be more that he was ugly on the inside. And it was more mm-hmm. of a, a modern commentary about how ugliness exists on the inside, not on the outside. And I was like, wait, this happened, you know, eight years ago on Broadway where we had... So I really liked that. Um, I also felt like it was a different... for At the time... It was a different sound than I'd ever heard yes. on Broadway with a lot of the gospel, bluegrass, honky-tonk country. Now, previously, I mean, I, some of the shows we'd seen, I'm thinking like Memphis. Mm-hmm. But see, to me, that's more rhythm and blues of the time. I mean, this really had the country, the bluegrass. And yeah, I mean, of course, we had the gospel, but 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 really kind of like true to the roots. And again, it's Jeannie Tesori. And, and, and listen, everyone out there. Just go look at what Jeannie Tesori has written. Go look at all the different shows she's written. Line them up side by side. Go listen to them. Uh, I think the most recent work she's done is Kimberly Akimbo. I can't off the top of my head think of her first show. The first show that comes to my mind, I feel like, is Carolina Change. But it's not important. But my point is, listen to everything in between. Fun Home, Shrek, um, Violet, you know. None None of them sound the same. She creates works that just sound completely... She, she can create anything. Anything. Mm-hmm. And I am blown away by that. Um, and now she is someone who... I don't care what it is. If, she, if her name is on it as, as a composer, I want to go see it. I want to go hear it. What is the next new melody that's popped in her head that she's brought to life? So I absolutely love that. Well, and I think that the unique thing about Jeannie Tesori is she has these... Just this way of writing for feeling of experience. Yes. If that makes any sense. No, it absolutely does. All of her shows have that one emotion kind of tone to it. Yeah. I, I, almost, I almost said color to it. And I mean, that's also kind of, I mean, if you want to get a ferial on this, I feel like her shows do have a color to it. I really, and I yes. think if you get a true brilliant marketer paired with her shows, they do a great job of marketing it. So, for instance, Kimberly Akimbo has that perfect blue to it. And that show's music totally feels like that blue. Fun Home totally felt like that yellow. Shrek obviously felt very green. Carolina Change feels very deep blue. Feels very see, purple. See, I was going to say purple and orange is what uh, Carolina Change you know, is to me. But this show felt very Violet. beige. No, to me it felt very beige. Uh, it was beige and like a... a a violet that has just a little bit of pastel to it. Interesting. See, I got the beige, which is why I love the marquee that they had for this. But the It wasn't white, but it was just off-white, like eggshell. And I was mm-hmm. like, I can get that because with that, it could be anything that you visualize. And I love that because of the fact that they didn't... They didn't physicalize a lot of the things that they talked about if you will yeah so fun fact violet was her first musical was it really mm-hmm. um okay so she starts there and she goes all the way to kimberly akimbo yeah. and i can't wait for the next thing so i 
Jeannie Tesori, if you listen to our show at all, I am a huge fan and a, a huge admirer. And please keep writing the amazing music that you do. Because it's absolutely brilliant. So with that, we should probably start breaking down the show into yes. our... Little um, boxes. Yes. I'm going to come up with a theme song <laughs> for this segment. Just wait. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm on it. Us yeah. and our producer, Sarah. We're going to get on it. Save me. All right. Speaking of saving, let's start with the set. I liked how simple it was. Yeah. It, it did it. I mean, obviously, because we were on a bus most of the time. It's hard to build, like, flats or anything. But they also didn't use, like, projection on the screen where we were, like, driving. Mm -hmm. They relied more on the lights to create the idea of motion. But they just had these simple little things, like just chairs and a couple of tables and just things to set a space. A bed. The one time. Right. And we finished the sentence. Yeah. We could finish what the walls looked like in that hotel room. Uh, or the the Beale Street Music Hall, or even at the t- at the the church, you know, we were able to finish the the sentences. You pair that with when we would have those flashbacks when she was young, Vi. Mm-hmm. There was that scrim in front of it to let us know that it was a memory. Yeah, like it <clears throat> it was blurred just a little, yeah, so that we had that idea that you know this is a memory. It's not in complete clarity. One thing, and you're going to have to help me with this, because I remember, I'm having this memory of the set being deep, like the stage being deep, and they would have moments almost like up by the wings, if that makes sense. Yeah. Am I remembering correctly? That's how I remember it, too, because I remember there being like almost like a platform in the back. Well, but like, if you can, if you think about it, like, Pretend that instead of the stage thrusting out into the audience, it thrust back. Mm-hmm. But then there was also a second level, like, around it. Like, an audience could sit around it, right? But they would use that for, like, the memory scenes and such up above. Um, so they weren't, like, straight in the back, but they would be almost to the side, like stage right or stage left behind a script. See, I remember the back being, that's where the band was. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that's also where the ensemble would become the gospel choir. Yes. And that's might might have been where the motion started for the memory, but the memories always took place by Violet. Oh, see, I, for some reason her. I was remembering something up <clears throat> above near the wings. And I and the reason why that stood out in my mind, for whatever reason, is every other show I've seen at the American Airlines Theater, the shows, the sets have always been more forward towards the audience. And this one, for whatever reason I'm remembering, was set further back. Hmm. Which I love, though. It gave it depth. And so, rather than I'm feeling like we're meeting in the middle of the show, I kind of felt like I needed to lean in a little bit more. And I wanted to take in the space, rather than the space being laid out and kind of like like wide it almost made me funnel in closer but again yeah. this is a memory i'm relying on I, when i looked up pictures i couldn't find what i was looking for so that's why i was like is my memory just whack, whack with me be- or and you know what my brain it don't work so good so you know um but yeah the the simplicity of just using little things to set the space um the simple items that were brought on helped isolate parts of the stage and create the worlds so we weren't really using the full stage for a lot of the scenes, which I thought was really great. I'm always a fan of isolation, especially when it needs to be intimate. Okay. You know, when our focus needed to be mainly on Monty Flick and Violet, having that intimate three chairs and a table and a poker game. And yeah, there was a couple other people in this little stop, but it was all... um, Listeners, if you're out there and you've never seen a Broadway show, the front of the stage is lined. So zero is at center and then it branches out by even numbers to 16 typically. And that just helps with um, tech usually when they need to mark things. It also helps for the actors. Yeah, for choreography. For choreography so they can see where they're at on stage, you know. Um, But basically, if you can imagine, so zero is center, 16 is obviously the edge of the stage on stage left and right. A lot of the action happened like between stage right four and stage left four and that little small section of the stage, even when they had a lot of people with them like at a, at a, at a rest stop. And I appreciated that because it helped keep our focus there where we weren't trying to take in everything across this vast stage. So yeah. that was smart design building. 
And speaking of building, can we go on to the costumes? Please! That's what I've been waiting for. Well, then tell us about the costumes. They were so simple, yet so beautiful. It was definitely very 1960s rural Bible belt. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of linen, lots of like... Cotton. Cotton, prints. Like you didn't have that ultra mod 60s look. This was that softer, real living out in the world kind of yeah. 60s vibe, which I really like because it's very it's very soft and subtle as opposed to bright and bold like it would be in the city, like with when you think of like Jackie O or, you know It's not cosmopolitan. Exactly. It's and it just has that very Or suburb. It's Well the I, I, dresses were more for function than they were for fit. Yes. And I loved that the main source of color on stage came from Violet. Mm-hmm. If you remember. She was in a pink dress. Or a yellow dress. And everybody else, I mean, the Flick and Monty were in their, their you know, their military dress, which was these tan dress. The rest, you know, the bus driver was in a gray uniform. Everybody else was like in white or beige or something. Violet was in color. And yeah. that was smart. And then, like you mentioned, in these beautiful, looked like something from a thrift store dress. But it was perfect well and the other thing that i'd like to touch on is that sutton foster looked like she wasn't wearing any makeup and it was just her hair and i just remember the whole time going one she is absolutely beautiful and stunning why does she like you know like as a human that's what she looks like. But then the fact that she was able to play this character who saw herself as ugly and vile and the whole time I'm just like, she is stunning. Yeah. She is stunding. And, How- and you having now having worked with her mm-hmm. and, and being up close with her, that really is how she looks. Yeah. And that, that is how she looks. And I agree with you. I don't think she was wearing makeup. Maybe like stage makeup, let's say, right? To help make sure that she didn't get lost in the lighting. Right, but... But not nothing to enhance. Yeah, it, there was, she wasn't wearing lashes. She wasn't wearing, like, a certain color of lipstick. It didn't... She didn't have contouring, yeah. really. And she's still just so beautiful. And so for, the, for them to make that choice of her looking so plain, it just revealed her beauty, which is what... Like, I feel like what we were seeing of her is what Flick was seeing the whole time. Yeah. Just this beautiful human who has gone through something and can't see how wonderful they truly are. And I think that the way that they did that through costume really just made that story and drove that point home for me. Yes. The last thing that I want to mention is I feel like the more color that is added to someone's costume, the more scarred or damaged they are. Okay, yeah, because the church scenes and the hooker were the ones that had, like, the most color that I can remember. Exactly, and if you look at who had the color, the more damaged they were. Uh, In the church scene, it was the televangelist and the choir. And I know it's like, well, how could the televangelist or the choir be be damaged or scarred? It's a show. You know, the choir is following a snake oil salesman Mm -hmm. kind of thing, you know. So I thought that was clever that you... the per I mean... To be fair, apparently Violet has this awful scar on her face. She is damaged. That's why she has the color on from the get-go. But the more people she meets, and like I said, I feel like it's a journey about internal. The more we find, and and if you also notice, if I remember right, her colors get lighter Mm -hmm. as we go. And we start to realize she's not, she's more beautiful on the inside and more pure. And so she's, yeah. Anyway, you see the connection there. And speaking of lighter, I think it, that's a good segue into lights. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on good segues today. Get it? Segway? Anyway, forget You're about terrible. it. terrible. I thought they were really, really great. Um, I thought it was a great use of shadows. Not hiding the face per se, but especially given the fact that they talked about that massive scar, they did use it to like cast a shadow of doubt over situations, of relationships, you know? Um, 
it never felt fully lit. It always felt like a lot of these things were kept, like they were being done well, in it, shadows. Well, and everything had this um, just fuzzy appear, like appearance, so it didn't have a lot of clarity until yes. the end. I also like that the lights were what, get, like I said, gave us the motion when they were in the bus. They were they used the lights to to, to communicate the bus moving and all that, which okay. I appreciated because we could, like I said, it could have been really tacky where they had a video board in the back that was projecting us driving down the road, and then that would have been like, to me, that in that instance, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, that looks worse than just using lights because I want to imagine what the countryside looks like. Not you be like. Hi, this is an old 1940s film. We're going to play a reel of, you know, recorded this byways and whatnot behind as we d clearly fake drive down the road. Right. You know, no, that's that's not going to do it for me. Um, and then back to the set, tying in the set with the isolation. I love the isolation of lights, which really helped create those simple worlds and the unique worlds, um, both in in the now of the show as well as when we had those flashbacks like I mentioned behind the scrim where we had young Vi you know it helped really keep those worlds separate but then bring them together I also again my in my memory I remember when young Vi did come through the scrim um, she was still in like a, a more copper light when she was with Vi she was never in the same lighting as Vi, so that we knew that young Vi was a memory, not... Actually there. Yeah. And I thought that was great. That was a perfect way to allow these these two actors, these two characters to exist on stage at the same time without doing something like, put on a different costume, it, put yeah. on, you know, we're going to make you a ghost. So, so um, chugging along, uh, let's talk about the direction. Um, you know, um, the fabulous direction of Lee Silverman. Um, I really loved the direction. I think it is in the simplicity that the show thrives. It's not glitzy. It's not blockbustery. It's not glamorous. It's simple. And that's where it makes it great. Like, I love the development of the characters and the pace at which the character's journey takes place. We didn't rush in everything. It was... <clears throat> I felt like we started at a six where we knew something had happened that was tragic. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden we were getting on a bus to go somewhere kind of thing. And then it felt like we had rushed things and we're like, wait, where are we going and why? But then as we started unraveling and revealing things, then it was like, oh, no, no, no. We are exactly where we need to be. And the more you started to uncover... Bad analogy, but it's gonna work. Onions. The more mm. layers of the onion you peeled back, the more it was like this is perfect. And it did. It felt like we were just sitting there slowly peeling onions and listening to the story. And everything just felt natural and just developed perfectly. Nothing felt forced or rushed or anything. Um I love the issues that were addressed to the show, not just the beauty questions or the interracial issues. But the idea of judging one another, the idea that true beauty or, or true goodness is beneath the surface. Yeah. You know, there's so much judgment in the show, in, these, in this music, in this book. And yet at the end of the day, you know, you've got these two great characters that, you know, you know, Violet comes to realize, not only do I have to stop judging other people and comparing myself to other people, but I got to stop judging myself. And then you got this guy Flick who's like, I've been saying that the whole time. Mm -hmm. Because just like you, I too have a scar, according to society, in my skin color. Yeah. I've dealt with that ugliness too. And I think you're perfect the way you are. And you saw me as someone who's perfect the way I am. So, And I thought, God, what? And the thing is, is the director didn't make that the focus. And so when that emerges at the end... It's like that bonus ending, that bonus message. But it was there the whole time. Yeah. I thought that was so clever. Um, I love the balance that existed on the stage. You know? Um, especially in the triangle between Violet, Flick, and, and Monty. Their personalities filled the gaps between each other and balanced the energy on the stage. So when they were there, 
the stage just felt right. You know, you didn't have any one, you didn't have a dominating personality or character on there. It really just, uh, it reminded me of, um, oh, there's an, an older show and I'm seeing Gene Kelly, but there's, you know, she's in the middle of two guys. I think it's Anchors Away and she just huffs off with them and it's a great moment, you know, old timey kind of thing, but it did. They, the balance was just perfect. And you need that. You don't want your stage to be lopsided one way or the other. Especially, one thing to note here, with the star power that you have. Sutton Foster was a known quantity. Joshua Henry was not what we know Joshua Henry is today. You know, so you wanted to have that good balance. Um, and I liked how the design and the direction forced us to hyper-focus on the stage and lean in just a little bit. Like I said, the way that everything was built in that, we didn't just sit back and take it in and it was presented to us. We had to actually lean in a little. Oh, that's interesting that she learned math by playing poker. That's interesting that he's reading her book. Oh, what's going to happen now? You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. we did. <clears throat> nah, and I definitely think when it comes down to it, I really think it's the music that made this show for me. Well, then why don't we go into music and have you talk about it? Yeah, so I love the music because not only did it have that folksy feel to it, but also it it had this glimmer of hope um, in every breath. Even though there were multiple songs, different songs, songs that were about different things, just the underscoring and the tone of the way that Jeannie Tesori wrote it it just, it has this building hope. It has this building light in it um, that is just beautiful. And, like, I can't think of any of the words, which is unfortunate, but, like, I can hear the chords in my head. Um, and, honestly, when she's done with the televangelist and the preacher and all that stuff, when she's done with that, that's when those chords actually become heavenly. You know, there's that touch of darkness to it until that happens. Yeah, to me, Jeannie Tessori can do no wrong. This is yet another style that she's conquered. Um, it's funny that you say you can't remember the words to, her, to the songs because I can totally hear, I'm on my way, I'm on my way. And I can remember, like, the folk song, Mama, what's a man say? Tell you if I know. I mean, I can remember some of them. The, the biggest one I remember is the one where she gets in the bus. I am on my way. Anyway, I don't need to sing the album for everyone. I'll be doing my 54 Below premiere in a few weeks. Anyway, but I think you, you nailed it with, there's just this beautiful... The, the way the orchestrations fell. Gorgeous chords that just elicit these emotions, these colors, and these... This sound of America, of that mm -hmm. place in, in the country. When we say Bible Belt, and you immediately go, what does the Bible Belt sound like? You can hear it. You know, it's not twang, but like you can hear the choirs. You can hear that country music. You can hear... And if you, you start to name places, you can hear a certain kind of music. You know what I mean? And the last thing I want to mention about the music is Sutton's voice. It was perfect for the score. Well, she has a very distinct voice. It's very brassy. Mm -hmm. But it was perfect for this role with the light accent, with the way it navigated the score. Just everything. Like, I wouldn't... I wouldn't want to change... I, I don't know who else could play this role. I, the more and more I dig into the Sutton Foster repertoire, the more and more I just absolutely love her. I mean, she does... Her, her gift is incredible. And she has mastered her instrument so well. And this is just a, an exemplary example of her skill. Um, so she just... Just like any instrument that's used in the orchestra, she uses it just as perfectly, and it's brilliant. And the other thing I love with it is not only does it sound great, there is actual emotion behind it. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that I've always and I've admired about her is I'm like, 
she can put so much feeling behind the way she sings. She can act in her singing, even through a cast recording. And now even a music man, she doesn't have to say words. She just acts. I mean, God, the, her, her first big entrance in The Music Man, she doesn't say anything. She just gives a look. And we're already like, great, done. Here's your Tony. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, And then she gives, the, the next thing she gives us is a, you know. Again, it's not a word. It's a scoff. But she know she has just perfected the way to do that, that we're just eating out of the palm of her hand. She gets it. She does it brilliantly. The show has had several notable performers, including Annie Golden, Alexander Geminani, Colin Dono, Joshua Henry, and Sutton Foster. Now let's talk about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history. And I want to start with the theatrical impact. Another huge success for Jeannie Tesori. Another? This was her first. Well, no, no, let me backtrack here, okay? This might have been the first show she's written, but I'm talking about 2014 when the show was done, when we saw it, right? Um, pre, pre, That's all, folks. Previously, um, you know, playing on Broadway, Shrek, Carolina Change. So, you know, Violet hasn't played on Broadway yet. This is Violet playing on Broadway. So this is another huge success for Jeannie Tesori on Broadway. You know, more to come. Stay tuned, kids. There's a lot. Uh, it's another huge success for Sutton Foster. Yes, this is not her first show. <laughs> and it's not her last. Stay tuned, kids. Um, and it's also a honky-tonk country musical. And I think that is a theatrical impact because there's not a lot of them. Um, you know, I don't know why there's not a lot of honky-tonk country musicals. Um, but, I mean, anybody out there, if you want to become a patron and come join the cocktail hour, we can have a conversation about it. I have my theories, but I'm not going to share them right now. But I have my theories of why there's not. But... Um, I do think that the fact that it's kind of a honky-tonk country gospel music, bluegrass musical, is a huge theatrical impact. It stands out among the others. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you have anything to add or should we go to societal I impact? Think, I, think, I think you said it really good. Oh, thank you. I always say things good. I speak good. For societal impact, I think the message may be the best societal impact. The idea that we must judge by... be We, we must judge... And be judged. Uh, yes, by what's inside, not on the outside. By the beauty within, not the scars or skin on the outside. And particularly at this time, in 2014, there was a huge movement about the idea of, of, of beauty. What is beauty? You know, now this isn't when the whole body positivity thing took off, but this was when there was a lot of like this is the early part of when that movement would start this is like the pre of that this is the well and this was at the time where people were making fun of lady gaga's outfits for being outlandish and crazy when in reality she was also trying to say the same thing that the beauty is in the creation not well and it's what the, you perceive it was also starting to you started hearing the rumblings about um what is it, the the unachievable body image? Well, and you have women openly rejecting wearing makeup, like, um, oh my gosh, Alicia Keys. In 2014? Yeah. Well, I was thinking more about, like, people coming out and saying, like, what you're seeing in ads and uh, magazines and things like that, they're, they're altered images. So it's not really an attainable image that you can get. You really will never look like what you see in commercials or on billboards and that because they've been altered. That's not really how people look. And that this is at this time, this is when that conversation started. This is when that dialogue started. And people started being like, I'm not going to be able to have that big, of, that small of a waist or that clear of skin or that shiny of hair or you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And people started having that dialogue and being like, so then why is this being pushed on me? 
if this isn't if these aren't real standards or achievable standards why are companies using this to to sell me something mm-hmm. and that's where that dialogue started and to me this was a perfect show that was like hmm it's almost like we should stop trying to look at each other and compare beauty and look inward because no one goes oh my god I just love my wife because she has the most perfect nose in the world. I mean, she's a monster. She fires waiters and, you know. That's not me. And, I'm not. And throws babies off of a roof <laughs> and lights school buses on fire. But she has the most perfect nose and the shiniest hair. No, no one says that. Like, oh my gosh. And, and, let's, it, and let's be 100% clear. I'm not like that at all. No. No, you just light school buses on fire. Um, no, I'm kidding. Well, when you love something, set it <laughs> no, on fire. fire. Thanks, Bob's Burgers. No, but I mean, you know, it's when you really, I mean, and if you are that shallow of a person, like, God bless, it takes all kinds of kinds. But most people, when they love something about someone, it tends to be something not necessarily, it really does tend to be something not physical. It tends to be something like they make me feel a certain way mm-hmm. or we connect over something like that. And this show was like, incredible, beauty's within. Beauty is a moment, not a physical thing. Yes. Wow. So then I think we need to ask the question, is the show relevant? So the show has fantastic music and a very good story. And with that, it is a perfect show for collegiate and regional and even community theaters. But as for Broadway right now, I don't think it's relevant at the moment. I think there are other revivals that sh- would be better to be done right now perhaps in another few years let's let's take another run at the show but i think right now i I, i'm okay with keeping this on the shelf for a little longer Mm -hmm. no i mean i think definitely for broadway it's not it's not its time anymore um but i do like the idea of seeing a regional or a college production of this show. Yeah, especially a college production. I I think a college production of this show, especially in a school that's on the Bible Belt. Yeah, and there's plenty of good musical theater schools in the Bible Belt. Yeah, and so So I think this... If anyone's listening, we know we have listeners on that way. Come on now, let's do this. Yeah, I think that it would be... It would be a really good exploration for a college. Yeah. Finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show. So we had the good fortune of getting to see the show once in 2014. Um, We've got a few memories attached to it. Um, Fun fact for all of you playing at home, our Broadway theater bingo. uh, This was the first time we had ever seen a show, first time we'd ever been to the American Airlines Theater. Mm -hmm. So that's another theater on our bucket list we checked off. Um, I mean, I would have to go back and see where we stand now, like what theater we haven't been to. But, I mean, there's that. Um, this is uh, another show, another opportunity, another great show that we saw starting Sutton Foster. And seeing just a phenomenal appearance. Yes. Or, or a performance. Yeah. And loving the show and just being amazed by it. And, you know, now I know that that roundabout does... Um, revivals of musicals they don't tend to do new musicals they do revivals so that makes more sense but i was just like wow roundabout theater i've heard of you but look at this incredible show like musicals you do wow and they do like roundabout doesn't do anything halfway it's always over the top amazing uh meeting the cast afterwards was incredible particularly meeting joshua henry which like i said he wasn't the joshua henry of now so meeting him then and then like a year later, it was like, oh my gosh, I met you then. And then as he continued on, playing these enormous roles in like Carousel and, and Into the Woods. I mean, mm-hmm. the dude is amazing. Uh, the we, dude? The dude, yeah. Yeah, me and Joshua Henry, we go way back, you the know, dude. to the stage door at the American Airlines. That, that chabra, you know. Um, we 
did see Sutton Foster. We did not get to meet her or anything because the night we saw, here's how incredible a performer she is. She did an incredible job in the show, but then when she left, she left and she was she would have signed, but um, she wasn't feeling well that night. So she just, you know, she was like, I'm so sorry, I got in her car. And she actually did look like she wasn't feeling well. And I was like, but you just did that amazing show, but you feel like that? Oh my gosh, like, mm-hmm. talk about a true soldier. I mean, that was amazing. So. You'll be able to catch Violet sometime, I hope near you we also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and a patron of the show by getting your backstage pass information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stage whisper pod so until next time i'm andrew cortez and i'm hope bird reminding you to turn off your cell phones unwrap your candies and keep your mask on and keep talking about the theater in a stage whisper thank you If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by The Joy Drops, The Good Louds, John Bartman, David Munford, and Billy Murray. <laughs>